Well, good morning, High Point. Thank you for joining us today. We're glad to have you here in person. Happy those who are joining us online. A couple quick announcements before we get started. Um, I want to remind all of you who hold a membership here at High Point that today is our annual business meeting. It is at 5 o'clock uh, this evening here in the sanctuary. We really need you to come out and be a part of this meeting. We're going to be voting for two board positions. And for those of you who are still uncomfortable, uh, probably watching online with gathering together publicly. We understand that due to your COVID concerns. And like last year, we are offering you to do drive up voting. You can come between the hours of three o'clock and five o'clock, sign in and cast your vote. We also provided you in the form of a letter or an email with a link that you can actually watch the proceedings from the comfort of your home. Uh, so we really need our members to show up either to drive up and vote or to come and be a part of that meeting so that we will have a quorum. Without it, we will have to schedule our meeting for a later date, and we do not want to do that. We don't want to kick that can down the road. So I encourage you, and like I said at the early service, I beg you, please come to the meeting. We need the quorum, and we need you here so we can take care of business. We only do it once a year, so it's not asking a lot. Uh, on a sad note, uh, many of you know Pastor Scott Camp, my good friend who is pastor over uh, at Bridgeway Community. His, uh, his wife, Sharon, passed away this week. She had been ill for some time. He had devoted a great deal of his time just to taking care of her, and at the end, he was pretty much doing that full time. Um, she passed away, uh, I believe it was uh, Friday night, about 8 p.m., and uh, we are going to hold the service next Saturday here at High Point. We were concerned about their building not being large enough to hold the crowd that might come uh, with social distancing and all of that. So I offered uh, for High Point to host it. So tomorrow, or next, this coming Saturday at 10.30 in the morning, there will be a service, a funeral service for Sharon. And uh, if you knew Scott, or if you just want to come out to support him and his family, you are welcome to come and be a part of that service, 10.30 on Saturday morning. Well, today, as Chris mentioned to you, is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week, which leads up to Easter Sunday, which, of course, we are going to celebrate together on next Sunday. It was a day, as Chris said, where Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was riding on a donkey, and he was like a conquering hero that was coming home from war. Uh, he arrived, and the crowds were cheering him. They were waving palm branches, and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But unfortunately, as we know, the same people who were praising him later on in that week cried out for him to be crucified. And of course, he was. God allowed his only son to be sacrificed for the sin of all mankind. And as a result, all of humanity was afforded a pathway to, to reconciliation with God the Father through the forgiveness of sin, which was made possible by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And since that day, as people have received salvation and as their lives have been dramatically transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament church was birthed and it continues to grow to this day doing amazing things throughout the world as we await Christ's return. Now, as you are thinking of the New Testament church, I want you to use your creative imaginations this morning, if you will. Let's say that you were a graphic artist and, and someone came to you and said that they wanted you to design a logo for Christianity. If you were responsible to create something that would adequately describe or exemplify Christianity, what would that be? 
You know, today's companies spend a lot of money in hopes of coming up with a logo design that gets indelibly fixed in the minds of the consumers. They do this so the masses won't just remember their companies, but they will also reach into their pocket and buy whatever their company sells. I want to show you a few examples of some very popular logos, and I'll see if you can recognize them. The first one is, what company does that represent? Nike. Yeah, just do it is their, is their line. There's a word for that little design. It's called the Nike swoosh, if you can say that right. Nobody knows what the swoosh is, but it's a sign of victory, and it's a sign of a winner, and we associate that symbol with winners, particularly in the athletic realm. Here's another one. Apple. This logo identifies one of the most successful companies of our time. Apple makes Mac computers and iPhones and iPads and iPods and anything that has an I in front of it. They are known as innovators in consumer electronics and the people who purchase Apple products, they're a very loyal bunch of customers. Even though their products are pricier than the competition, those who swear by their quality are willing to pay the price for the technology that they offer. Here's the next one. What company does this represent? I just hear, huh. <laughs> Amazon. Amazon.com. It started in 1994 as an online bookstore. Today it has a value of $1.4 trillion dollars. Amazon is the largest company by revenue, internet company by revenue in the entire world, and it is now the second largest private employer in the United States of America. Its founder, Jeff Bezos, is now the wealthiest man on earth with a net worth of $189 billion. By the way, that's after divorcing his wife and she took half of what they had before that. So one can only imagine what he would be worth if he'd have stayed married. That just goes to show you, you never divorce like the Bible says, but that's not the reason you don't get divorced. You stay married because you love your spouse and you made a commitment to them for life, amen? This company has identified, or, or is identified with efficiency combined with availability and competitive pricing on most anything that you would ever want to buy. Those are three very famous corporate logos in a world that is literally full of them. And there are some very smart and some very creative people who stay up late at night trying to dream one of these things up, trying to make the, the one that they're designing very compelling so that when you see it, you will say to yourself, I like what that logo represents. That, that, that company knows what they're doing and I trust them enough in their product or their process to do business with them. And that brings me to a very important question. Because for over 2,000 years now, the simplest expression of the Christian faith is standing right behind me. Two pieces of wood joined together on which criminals were executed. It's an instrument of death, and it is the corporate logo of the church of Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, this is the logo of which you have built your life upon. And of course, the question dying to be asked is why? Out of all the things in the world, why the cross? I want you to think about it. If you were trying to create a movement that would attract the souls of men and women from all over the planet, 
Why in the world would you choose the cross? And you know, as you look at the symbol of the Christian faith, I'm concerned that in our world that crosses have become commonplace. You can pick one up at any jewelry store, any department store. You see the cross tattooed on a lot of people's bodies. You see it all the time. But unfortunately, many people have forgotten the shock. Many people have forgotten what the cross really stood for. That's not a sign of a winner. That's a sign of death. It's not the sign of abundance to the minds of this world. It's a sign of ultimate loss. It's not the sign of status. It's the ultimate expression of humiliation. I think one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith is that there is a God of the universe who holds all power, who holds all wealth. He's created everything, and he would choose to use a cross as the essential expression of his heart, of his love, of his character to a lost and dying world. And whether or not you have come to the cross personally, whether or not it is expressed in your personal life, by the time you leave here today, I hope that you will be crystal clear about the meaning of the cross, about why it stands at the center of the Christian faith. I want you to understand the pain of the cross and to know exactly what Christ suffered. I also want you to understand the power of the cross and what a difference it makes in the, lives, in the life of this world and, and what a difference it can make in your life personally. And I want you to understand what it means to be a people of the cross and exactly what it is that Jesus invites his followers to do. I want you to be crystal clear about the cross because next week when we join together, we are going to be celebrating Easter. And you need to understand, there would be no Easter without the cross. So I want to start by sharing with you a little bit of, about the history of crucifixion so that you'll understand a little bit more about the first point, the pain of the cross. In the ancient world, the Romans knew a whole lot about executing people because they did it a lot. Capital punishment was the norm, and it happened for more than just murder. You could be a thief and, be, be, uh, and have capital punishment applied to you. In the ancient world, the, the Romans knew how to execute people cheaply. They would do that by burning people and by stoning people, and they did that often. They also knew how to execute people swiftly with the edge of a sword, a stroke of a sword, and they did that as well. They also knew how to execute people quietly and privately. As an example, Socrates was killed by being forced to drink hemlock, which is poison. It was a very dignified, private little ceremony with him surrounded by some of his closest friends and family. That's how he was eliminated. Well, crucifixion, the way that Jesus died, was a much more cumbersome deal. It required four soldiers and one centurion just to oversee it. And it would take literally hours and even in some cases days. It was more time consuming and it was more costly to do. And they reserved this form of execution for two main reasons. First, it was used in cases when they wanted to maximize the pain. The agony that a condemned man would suffer through the crucifixion could be drawn out. It took a much longer period of time for them to die. Secondly, 
They used it when they wanted to maximize the public humiliation of the person being crucified. A custom was that the man who was condemned would be forced to carry that crossbeam on his back and they marched him through the heart of town. They would deliberately take the longest and the most crowded route possible where people would see what was happening. And soldiers would go before the condemned man with a sign that spelled out or proclaimed the crime at which the criminal was accused. Their intent was that by the time they got to the place of execution, it would be a public deal. It would attract a, a large number of people who would taunt and who would humiliate the person that was hanging on the cross until which time they died. The idea was that the condemned man would be made a spectacle of, and it would be a public event, very much like a sporting event in our time, as sick as that is. Now, one of the reasons that the Romans did this is that they were, they were occupying hostile territory, in this case, Jerusalem. And naturally, anybody who's being occupied are kind of apt to want to rebel. They want to gain their freedom. They want to gain their independence from Rome. And so the Romans wanted to discourage this kind of action. So crucifixion was used most often in cases of treason or someone who was trying to bring a, arise an insurrection of some type. And it was such a cruel form of death that by law, it could not even be used on a Roman citizen. It could only be used on a foreigner or a slave which had no value. And it was a painful death. And I want you to understand something about the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross for you and for me. The average criminal would suffer quite severe physical pain. And in many cases, as was the case with Jesus, the condemned man was first beaten. They used a whip called the cat of nine tails. Could someone please go out in the foyer and tell who's ever out there yelling to calm down? Could, would somebody do that for me, one of the ushers? Thank you. I'm sorry, it's distracting me. I'm hearing that. They used an instrument called a whip. It was a whip called a cat of nine tails. It was leather straps, and embedded inside of those straps were sharp pieces of bone or metal or glass which were designed to cut the flesh. And so when they, when they would whip the person, it would not only cut the flesh, but then as they yanked it back, it would literally tear the flesh away from the body. It would cause such profuse bleeding in the, in the criminal that if the Roman centurion did not calculate it carefully, they could die right there due to a loss of blood. Now after this scourging, as I said earlier, they attached the crossbeam to the person's back and arms. And they would force the criminal to walk through the city streets to their place of execution. Once they arrived, the cross would be laid down on the ground and the criminal or the condemned man would be laid upon that cross. And then the soldiers would take a metal spike and just below the wrist, they would drive that through their wrist into the cross and then they would repeat it on the other side. Then they would take the criminal's feet, right foot against the cross, left foot on top of that. They would take a spike and drive it through the top of the upper foot, through the second foot, down into the wood of the cross. Then they would raise the cross, and on it the condemned man would have to raise himself up in order to take a breath, to inhale. 
This would place the full weight on the nails that were driven into his feet, literally ripping the nerves between the metatarsal bones in his feet, causing searing pain. And when that became unbearable and he had to exhale, he would sag down. And that would bring unbearable pain into the nails that were driven through his wrists. And the Roman soldiers deliberately left the arms and the legs of the crucified man slightly flexed. They did this so this process of inhaling and exhaling and the, and the pain that it created could go on for a longer period of time. It was designed to prolong the agony of the condemned. And the condemned would be left on the cross, exposed to the heat or cold, depending on the time of year it was. In the winter, they could freeze. In the summer, they could die of dehydration. But ultimately, they're going to die either way. And this could go on for hours. And in the cases of a very strong man, it could go on for days. But eventually, they all died. And most commonly, they died of suffocation. That's the physical suffering of the average criminal who hung on a cross. And Jesus, he experienced that for you and I. I think sometimes we've gotten in such the habit of saying, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, and we're excited about that. But we don't really think what he, what he did. We don't really think about what he endured. Yeah, he gave his life for me. That's real easy to say, but when you, when you look at the, the, the process, he was tortured. He was tortured for us. The physical suffering on the cross is huge. And Jesus experienced this for us. And this is what was going on as he looked down from that cross onto the Roman soldiers who were, who were abusing him, and when he looked down on all of the masses of people who were taunting him and mocking him, and that's when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But here's what I find very interesting. The gospel account actually says very little about the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. As an example, Mark 15, 24 simply says this, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Very little about the physical experience on the cross. But as I described you, it was utterly horrendous. And if that wasn't enough, you need to understand that Jesus' deepest suffering, his most significant suffering, was utterly unique from anyone else's. Because Jesus was experiencing a form of spiritual suffering that you and I can only dimly imagine. As hard as it is to believe, it made his physical suffering almost inconsequential. And I want to ask you this morning to try your best to reflect on this that I'm telling you this morning. In, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that on the cross, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin. You see, Jesus knew no sin. Therefore, he never experienced any guilt, never a moment of shame, never a, a pang of regret, the only pure innocence through his entire existence. And so when I say that, I want you to take a moment to think about one of the darkest things that you've ever done in your lifetime. We've all done things. It is something that would cause the most intense pain and humiliation if somehow we were able to flash it up on the screen behind me with your name attached to it for all of us to see. Maybe you've been a part of physically abusing someone 
or sexually abusing someone or emotionally really destroying another human being. Maybe you have betrayed a marital vow. Maybe it was an act of deceit that cost you your job or cost you a friend or a relationship. Maybe it's a habitual sin that you are so ashamed of that you've spent your entire life trying to keep it as a secret from everyone else. I don't know what it is, but we've all done or we all do things that we're ashamed of. And if other people knew the whole story, we'd feel humiliated by that. And the pain that you experience over this, I understand is real. Because whether it was in the past or whether it is an everyday struggle that you deal with, you'd give anything to erase that from your life. Now imagine experiencing the weight of that sin and countless other sins that you've committed, some of which your conscience is too dull to even remember or to dwell on, and then add to that not just the guilt of your own sin, but the guilt and the pain and the shame and the regret and the destructiveness to the soul of every sin ever committed on the face of this earth from the beginning of creation until the end of time. I'm talking about every sin that was ever committed by every fallen human being who has ever lived. Every act of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Every one. Every murder since the beginning of time. Right down to today and into the future. Every seduction. Every betrayal. Every deception. Every genocide. Think about the Holocaust. How horrific that was. Every mean and spiteful word. Every greed-driven business deal, every sacrifice of integrity, every shabby little lie, every time a person acted like they were better than another person or smarter than another person to demean them. Imagine feeling the horror and the despair of that sin in one heart. One person carrying the load of all of that. And then imagine experiencing the judgment and anger of a righteous God toward all of that sin and all of that awfulness is directed at you. And think about this. Jesus, his whole life, he'd never experienced anything other than perfect intimacy with God the Father. Jesus had never known a single moment of what it's like to be lonely or what it's like to be forgotten by his Father. But while on the cross... The scriptures say he cried out these words in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. By God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What would it mean to be wholly forsaken by God? And I don't mean H-O-L-Y, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y. To be wholly, totally forsaken by God. The truth is in this world none of us will know. I think some of us know something about the feeling of being estranged from God or, or distant from God or perhaps feeling like his favor is not on our life at that exact moment, but none of us know what it is like to be wholly forsaken by God. You see, even people who shake their fist at God in defiance, he still gives them good gifts. He wakes them up every morning. He gives them breath to breathe. But on the cross... Jesus experienced something that you and I cannot even imagine. And it was the horror of what it would be like to be utterly 
forsaken by God the Father. Complete spiritual darkness, spiritual aloneness, utter forsakenness, utter abandonment, utter hopelessness. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, my soul is in anguish. He also said, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. The sorrow was so great on him already at that point. He thought he was going to die. And then when you add to that, the physical suffering that I explained to you earlier was horrendous, but nothing, nothing compared to this aloneness that he was feeling at this moment. Jesus was mistreated by the authorities. He was mocked by the crowds. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. Uh, he, he was deserted by his best friends. But the real suffering was the spiritual suffering that you and I can't even comprehend. In Galatians 3.13, it says that on the cross, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He experienced the suffering and the guilt that you and I will never know. And he did all that so that you and I could experience a supernatural healing and we could receive forgiveness that we could never, ever possibly earn on our own. That leads me to the second aspect of the cross, the power of the cross. It was very apparent to the onlookers that day that what took place on the cross when Jesus died was an act of extraordinary spiritual power. We're told that in the Bible, when he hung on the cross between the hours of noon and three, that the land became dark. It was kind of an expression of the spiritual darkness that was going on at that moment. And at that moment, the earth shook. There was an earthquake, and we're told that there is a veil in the temple that, that seals off a room. This room is called the Holy of Holies. It is a place where the presence of God dwelt. So this veil seals off this room, and only one of the high priests could ever go into that room, and generally would only do it once a year when he went in to atone or to do to, to, to a sacrifice for the sins of all of Israel. And when Jesus died, the scriptures tell us that that veil was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And while all this was happening, the scriptures also tell us that the centurion who's experiencing this, experiencing the darkness, experiencing the, the, the ground shaking, he looks up and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. It's an act of extraordinary spiritual power. And I want you to understand the kind of power that was released on the cross. First, there was the power of forgiveness because placed upon Jesus was the collective guilt of all of the entire human race, including yours and including mine. Your guilt was on the cross with Jesus. Your sin was on the cross with Jesus, and so was mine. But the Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This means that you, no matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, can be completely forgiven by God. You can walk out of this place this morning with a clean conscience. You can walk out of this be place today being cleansed of everything. Not because you've earned it, certainly not because any of us is deserving of it, 
but because it's just the power of the cross, the power of now having access to our Heavenly Father. When that veil was ripped in two, there was great symbolism to that act happening. The Holy of Holies, as I said, was a place where God dwelt. But because no sin was able to, to go into the Holy of Holies, no one could go in there other than a priest. And you had better be sure that that priest was prayed up before he went into that room. I read once that they tied a rope to his waist and they put bells on that rope in the event that there was sin in his life. If there was, he would be struck dead going into the Holy of Holies. When they heard the bells ring, they would yank out his body with a rope. So the only person that could go into this was a priest. But when that veil ripped, God was saying, you now, you, you have full access to me. You can come to me anytime you want. You can now just live in my presence at any time. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. Because even in this world, we don't have access to powerful or famous people. Average Joes like me, well, we're cut off from them. And sadly, <clears throat> much of the human race lives under the belief that because we are sinful creatures and because God is a holy God that we've been cut off from him too. But that's not true. That's not true at all. On the cross, the veil was ripped in two. And God says that you can approach my throne, my throne of grace, with boldness. If you need wisdom, if you need guidance, if, if you ever get discouraged and you need comfort, if you are ever lonely and you need a friend, God says, you can come to me at any time in prayer. Fallen and sin-stained as you and I are, you can come to me anytime. We get that from the power of the cross. Secondly, on the cross, there is the power of reconciliation. People can not only be reconciled to God, but they can be reconciled to other people. Paul was writing the church in Ephesus because in Jesus' day, the Jewish people and the Gentiles were, were not really friends, almost enemies. They wouldn't speak to each other. They wouldn't eat together. And so Paul is writing to the church and he's trying to explain that when, when Christ died on the cross, in his body he made the two one. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus tore down what Paul called the dividing wall of hostility that had separated the Jews from the Gentiles for far too long. It was torn down. And people who had been bitter enemies once before could become brothers and sisters. This happened as a, as, a, as a matter of historical fact in the early church, and it still happens to this day. Black and white, male and female, parent and children, husbands and wives, people who are in estranged relationships, when they discover that at the foot of the cross, it's a level field, there's really only one kind of people that go there. People who are loved by God. People who are made in God's image. Every one of us. They are people who are fallen in sin, who can be redeemed by the death of Christ on the cross. And when they discover that, people get reconciled. And forgiveness and grace is extended. And those barriers that once separated people is now removed. And all that happens 
because of the power of the cross. Thirdly, the cross is the power of victory over evil. Paul writes about another amazing thing that happened on the cross. He says that when Jesus died, he disarmed the spiritual authorities, spiritual powers and authorities that were opposed to God, like the evil one, Satan. Colossians 2.15 says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, and I love this, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you recall, that's what the people were trying to do to Jesus. While he hung on that cross, they thought that they were making a spectacle of him, shaming him and humiliating him and, and, and screaming at him. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was really showing the ultimate triumph of the self-sacrificing love of God. And he was also showing us that any darkness that tries to stand in the way of that will be totally defeated. Fourth on the cross was the power of victory over sin. Sin and guilt and death were ultimately defeated on the cross. Part of what that means is that you, you don't have to be defeated by sin. You can begin to change. You can begin to experience a transformation in your life, even in this crazy fallen world in which we live. You don't have to be trapped or stuck in sin anymore. That's the power of the cross. That's why for over 2,000 years, the center of the Christian faith stands not a candle, not a star, but a cross. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You see, the world, to the world, the cross just stands for humiliation and death, like I talked about earlier. Why? Because the world wants nothing to do with self-sacrificing kind of love. The world, all the world seeks is victory and abundance and wealth and status and me being better than you. That's the mindset of the world. But that same scripture, I love it, goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, who have been saved, the cross is the power of God. And in that power, ladies and gentlemen, we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled not just to God, but to other people. We can be transformed. We can be empowered to live a life in a way that honors the sacrifice that Jesus made on that cross. The third main thing that I want to say this morning about the cross is that I believe Jesus' great des greatest desire for all of us is to be a people of the cross. His primary concern is not about wearing the symbol, the cross around your neck, though there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but that a self-giving, self-sacrificial love is, is supremely expressed, that was supremely expressed on the cross, is publicly displayed in our lives every single day. Not just in this room, but in boardrooms and living rooms in every room that you and I would be men and women of the cross. And in talking about that, Jesus said some of what I believe are the most sobering words ever recorded, and they are words that have changed more lives, I think, than any other. It's found in Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
And that naturally leads me to my next question. Have you chosen to become a person of the cross? Have you? Have you told God privately in your heart, every day when I get up, Lord, I'm going to take up my cross, and I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and whatever it is that's in my life that is displeasing to you, whatever it is that is dishonoring to you, I'll crucify that. Because here's the deal. We have to crucify things as followers of Christ that hinder our walk with him. We must eliminate those things that, that draw us away from living in the fullness of God. There's a kind of death that is required while following Jesus. We have to die to self. We have to die to our flesh, which always seems to be in the driver's seat and always leads us in the wrong direction. We gotta, we gotta die to our flesh. We gotta kill those things that dishonor the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And in doing so, that not only leads us to life, but it leads us to abundant life. Have you become a man of the cross? Have you become a woman of the cross? Even though we live in a world that wants to have Easter without a cross, please understand, as I said earlier, there can be no Easter without the cross. Anthony, would you come forward and help me to start shutting this down? I'm sure most of you have heard of C.S. Lewis before. Many of you probably read some of his books. He wrote a book titled The Great Divorce. And it is kind of a parable or an allegory of people who are making spiritual decisions. And Lewis and his teacher are watching a scene being played out of a man who, because of what sin has done to him, is really nothing more than a ghost at this point in time. And this man comes to the mountain, and the mountain is symbolic of, of the kingdom of heaven. It is symbolic of the presence of God. So he comes there. He comes to that mountain, but he brings his sin with him. And in this case, the man's sin that he wrestles with is lust. And his lust is depicted by a little lizard that sits up on his shoulder wherever he goes. And it's got a big mouth. It doesn't stop talking. It talks all the time. And deep in his heart, this man believes that he won't and cannot be accepted at the mountain because of his lizard. And he decides he's just going to go home. But an angel of radiant light approaches him, and he asks him, why are you leaving so soon? And thus begins a conversation about this ordeal. And the angel asked the man, finally, he said, would you like me to make him quiet? Of course, he's speaking of the, of the lizard, the loud lizard on the man's shoulder, his lust. And the man says, yes, I would. And so the angel says, well, then I will kill him. Well, at this point, the man freaks out. He can't bring himself to do something so, dr so drastic to his lifelong companion of lust. And he says this, he says, the lizard doesn't need to be killed. It just needs to be silenced. It needs to simply be managed. It needs to be kept in order. I think that the gradual process of lust being diminished in my life would be far better than killing it. And to this, the angel replies, the gradual process is of no use at all. So as the conversation continues on and on, 
The man continues to justify and rationalize the many reasons why he just can't seem to let go of his greatest struggle, his greatest nemesis called lust. But the man also realizes that he cannot be present at the mountain with the lizard still being a part of his life. You see, lust has been such a huge part of his existence that if he allows the angel to kill the lizard, he is deeply convinced that he himself will also die. That is the power of his attachment to his sin. And that is the power that we all have to the attachment of whatever sin we deal with. We don't think we can be separated from it, but that's not true. The angel explains, I can only kill it with your permission. And so he asks again to the man, may I kill it? Again, the man says no. But by this time he says, because it will kill me too. And the angel responds, he says, no, it won't. But suppose it did. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. And then the angel follows it up with saying, then may I? The man bellows, go on, get it over with, do what you like. But he ends up this tirade by whimpering, God, help me, God, help me. And while the angel is destroying the lizard, it's screaming with agony. And when he's done, he throws its lifeless form down on the ground. And the man cries out as well, certain that he too is going to die. But he doesn't die. In fact, an amazing thing happens. He is transformed back into a man. He no longer looks like that ghost of sin that, that showed up at that mountain the way that he looked from his sin. And the lizard looks like it's destroyed too. But then an amazing thing happens. Instead of being destroyed, it is resurrected. And that lizard becomes this magnificent stallion. And then C.S. Lewis's teacher looks at him and he's asked, do you understand all this, my son? He says, I don't know at all, sir, but am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into a horse? Yes, he said, but it was killed first. You won't forget that part. I'll try not to, sir, but does that mean that everything, everything in us can go to the mountains? We can go into the presence of God. And here's his teacher's response. And I want you to listen to this. Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it is now, as it now is. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. You think about it, ladies and gentlemen, that is really the message of the cross. 
Jesus died so that we might have life. And in that life that we put to death those things that hang on to us, that cling on to us, that do not honor God, and he resurrects us, and he makes us something better than we ever thought we could be. That is the power of the cross. And that is the power that is available to anyone who chooses to seek the cross. Would you all please stand to your feet with me? After all that you've heard this morning, I think the simple question to be asked is, Will you take up your cross? I don't know what your lizard is this morning. I don't know what it is that's clamoring and making noise on your shoulder. But every one of us has something. Maybe it is lust. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's deception. Maybe it is resentment. Maybe it's anger seething inside of you. Perhaps it's a lying or a gossiping tongue. Maybe it's some kind of an addiction you can't break free of. Perhaps it's an idol, something that you have made more important than God. And let me remind you that idols can even be people that you are in relationships with that become like a God to you. Whatever it is, it is something that is so prominent in your life that it gets your greatest attention. And I'm asking you today, will you nail it? at the cross. Will you say, God, all right, whatever it takes, however much it hurts, I'm going to kill it, or I want you to kill it. Destroy what is inside of me that is not pleasing to you. Resurrect it so that I might be the kind of person that you truly designed me to be. Whatever I need to do, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with my friends about this. I'll get whatever help I need to get. I'm taking up my cross, and I'm going to follow you. And it's going to change me. And from this moment on, I am going to carry my cross every single day. I wonder if it will be said about us that we were people of the cross. You see, we can go down all kinds of different roads, and we do. We can be a people of wealth. We can be a people of status. We can be a people of pleasure or of, or, or of power. We can even be a people of comfort. That's our most important thing in life. You can accumulate many of the symbols that signify that you've won in this world, or you can have the courage and the character to say, I'm going to be a man of the cross. I'm choosing to be a woman of the cross until the end of my life comes, and I will receive the fullness of life from the one who gave his life on the cross for my sake. I hope that you will choose the cross. Because if you do, you will then really understand and know how to rejoice and praise on Easter Sunday. Today, I want to open up this altar. We haven't been doing that a lot through COVID, but I think it's a very appropriate time to do so. If you have anything that you would like to pray about, anything that is on your heart this morning, I want you to feel free to work your way down here. You can start now. You can do it anytime. The altar is open. Maybe you want to come down and take a bit of a time to reconnect and recommit your life to Jesus. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but you've come to realize that you're just living on the fringe. You don't ever have any meaningful time with him. You don't talk to him. You don't pray. You don't read the word. You know he's there, but he has no real impact in your life anymore because you're not seeking him. You're just kind of floating along. 
If you're here today, you're watching online, if you've never received salvation, today can be the day where that can all change. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you, you have to believe and you have to confess. You have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That he came and he did exactly what I'm telling you he did on this cross so that you could be free from your sin, so that you could be forgiven. You confess that to him in prayer. In a moment when I pray, you can pray in your own words. Something as simple as this, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the only way to God the Father. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord of my life. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I ask you to walk with me every single day. Today, I give my life to you. If you ask Jesus into your heart today, you can look forward to next Sunday with great jubilation, with, with great anticipation coming here as we, we worship and thank God that he sent Jesus to die on that cross and to resurrect three days later. For the rest of you, can we bow our heads in prayer? Those of you at the altar, you can stay here as long as you want. I'm gonna pray a closing prayer. So if you'll all bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the cross. A very misunderstood symbol. And sometimes we, even as believers, diminish its importance. For without the cross, we would not have salvation. Without the cross, we would not have healing. Without the cross, we could not be in a redeemed relationship with God. And so we thank you for the cross. And for those who don't know you today, Lord, at home in this place, pray that they would have the courage to pray a simple prayer to you and receive you as Lord and Savior, invite, them, invite you into their lives. And today would be the beginning of a new start for them. And with your Holy Spirit indwelling them, Lord, they can learn to start to, to kill the many things in their life that, are, that, that draw them away from you, the things that hinder their relationship with you. And they will become victorious men and women of God. I pray that for all of us, even those who are already saved, because I know that as human beings, we still struggle with our flesh every single day. Our flesh is strong, but God, we know that the Spirit of God is stronger. And if we lean upon you and we allow you to do a transforming work in our life through your Holy Spirit, we have the ability to send the flesh on its way and to live a life that honors you. That is our desire. That is our prayer. As we approach Easter, Father, we want to approach it knowing that we are pure. We are clean. We have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and we can now live in complete victory. So I pray for everyone in this place that you would ignite, you would relight our fire of conviction for who you are and what you've done for us. That we would truly be a people of the cross in every sense of what that means. That we would not be Christian just by word, but by deed, by the things that we do, by the way that we love, by the way that we reach out to others. Father, use us as only you can. And I ask as we go our separate ways today, Father, that your spirit, which we already know does, but I pray it every week that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our paths, the things that we do, the places that we go, the conversations that we have, they would be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. And Father, that we would shine so brightly the love of Christ that is in our heart that people around us could not help but see it that we would shine brightly in this dark world and it would lead people to say, what is it that's different about you? And the door would open for us to share your goodness with them.
And yet, Father, even in those times when the door doesn't open by the act of another individual, that you would open doors for us to act upon and that we would walk through those doors confidently and proudly knowing that you've opened that door for us to share our, your goodness with someone else. So use us this week, Lord. Use us to share Christ with another. And if they choose not to accept you, Lord, let's invite them to church. Bring them to Easter Sunday so they can hear about the resurrection of Christ and why it is so essential that we serve him. And so, Lord, as we go our separate ways, I pray that you'll keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from any other sickness or disease that may come our way, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us and prevent us from joining together with our church family again. And help us, Lord, every moment of every day to recognize your greatness, to recognize the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us and that we would treasure that and we would hold it near and dear to our heart every moment of every day. And we would understand the great wealth that we have in Christ Jesus and the eternal life that is promised to us either when you return or when our life on this earth is complete. We thank you and we praise you for that promise. And we ask all of these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.